Testing. The story is told of the day that Alice uh, was to bake a cake for the women's ministry bake sale. But she was busy that week. She forgot. And at the last minute, she decided to try to whip a cake together. And ladies, you know how that goes sometimes. And some of you fellas. Um, you know, it's a disaster. And so the tall middle of the cake kind of crushed and fell. And she, it was too late to do anything else. And she couldn't run and buy one. So she came up with a creative idea. She went into the bathroom and got a roll of toilet paper. And she stuffed it in the middle of the cake. She put icing all around it. It looked good as new. So she told her daughter, listen, I'm going to take this cake to the bake sale. I'm going to give you money. Be the first one in line and make sure you buy this cake. And so her daughter said, fine. And, you know, sure enough, they had the bake sale. The daughter gets there, and she's a little bit late, and the cake is gone. They don't know what happened. Two days later, Alice is invited to a friend's house. They're, having, they're going to have a bridge game with a bunch of ladies from the church. And uh, they're having this game, and at the end of the game, this lady serves luncheon, the, the hostess serves luncheon, and they have a luncheon, and, and then she brings out this beautiful cake, and it's Alice's cake. And Alice was just about ready to go and grab it and say something, and one of the other ladies said, well, that is a gorgeous cake, to which the hostess of the luncheon said, well, and yes, and I baked it myself. She was one of those ladies that liked to get attention, and she was going to learn the hard way, you know, that there is a danger of seeking recognition, you know, of longing for attention, you know, of coveting the spotlight. You know, in our ongoing study through the Gospel of Luke, we come to a passage where Jesus specifically addresses those of us who struggle in that area. If you've got your Bible, turn with me to Luke chapter 22 where we're going to take a look at how Jesus defines true greatness. In Luke chapter 22, starting with verse 21, we find these words. But behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. For indeed the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man to whom he is betrayed." And they began to discuss among themselves which of them might be he who was going to do this thing. And there arose also a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles lorded over them. And those who have been authority over them are called benefactors, but not so among you. But let him who is the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the servant. For who is greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves. And you are those who have stood by me in my trials. And just as my father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. When once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. And he said to him, Lord, with you I am ready to go both to prison and to death. And he said, I say to you, Peter... The cock will not crow today until you have denied me three times that you know me. And he said to them, when I sent you out without purse and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? And they said, no, nothing. And he said to them, but now let him who has a purse take it along. Likewise, also a bag and let him who has no sword sell his robe and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. And they said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said, it is enough. You know, in this passage, Jesus identifies an ongoing sin with which the disciples wrestled. And as we'll learn, it is a sin that is also common among many believers today. You know, it's subtle, and if we're not careful, we can easily buy into this lie 
And the question is, as we go through this, what exactly is this sin and what was the problem that led to the teaching that we find in this passage? And that's what we find in verses 21 through 24. Notice again that we're told that, behold, the hand of the one betraying me is with me on the table. It says, and uh, he also goes on to say, for indeed the Son of Man is going as it's been determined, but woe is that man by whom it is betrayed. And then they began to discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. And there rose a dispute among them as to which one of them was regarded as the greatest. You know, this wasn't the first time that the disciples had committed this sin. In fact, Scripture reveals that it was an ongoing point of debate. It was something that they loved to discuss. And, and, it was going, and this discussion centered on and hinged on who was going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. If you recall from Luke chapter 9, you want to switch back just a couple of pages, you'll notice that this was something that they had discussed before. It's something that we read about in Matthew's account in chapter 20, verses 20 through 28. Also, Mark records it as well. It was an ongoing debate that they had as to which one of them would be the greatest. In verse 46 of chapter 9, and an argument arose among them as to which one of them might be the greatest. It says, but Jesus, knowing what they were thinking in their heart, took a child and stood him by his side and said, whoever receives this child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives him who has sent me. For he who is least among you, this is the one who is great. So it was an ongoing lesson, so to speak, that Jesus was trying to get across to them that if you want to be great in God's kingdom, it was going to be totally different than anything that they experienced in this lifetime. And so from each of these passages, as you go through and look at them, we understand that there was always an event that led to this particular argument. And uh, in one particular case, we know that Peter, James, and John were on the Mount of Transfiguration. And they came back with this glowing report of what they had just seen and what was going on. And the rest of the guys got jealous that, hey, you know what, are envious. Well, why wasn't it us? And so they got a little haughty about, you know, some of the things that, you know, God may bless us or give us certain gifts and certain abilities or he gives us certain blessings. And, and we start to think of ourselves maybe, as the Bible says, never think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think in order to affect sound judgment. We start thinking, you know what, we're all that. We're pretty special. And so they got in this ongoing argument and this debate that was continuous in nature because there was always something to trigger it or to set it off. There was another event that had taken place and nine out of the 12 disciples could not cast out demons. And so they got in an argument about, okay, well, you know what? Why couldn't we? And I think it was more on the standpoint that the three who could were looking at the nine who couldn't and said, why couldn't you? Said, we could, why couldn't you? You know, must be something wrong with your walk. <laughs> you know, must be something wrong with your, you know, spirituality, your level of, uh, of uh, spiritual discernment. There's always something that was there. And so they were so competitive, they continually would argue with each other. There was another time where Jesus paid Peter's uh, uh, tax. You know, and that could have led to another argument. Well, why didn't you pay our taxes? Why did you just pay his tax? You know, was he your favorite? You know, you took him up on the hill with you. Now you're paying his taxes for him. Well, what's wrong with us? And there was always this constant sort of aggravation that was there. And in this particular case, we know what caused this one. Jesus said, one of you are going to betray me. And they began to reason or discuss among themselves which one of them it might be who was going to do this thing. So they had a certain understanding. You know what? It could be any one of us. But I think that some of them thought, well, it couldn't be us. Peter, James, and John had to be thinking at this point, oh, it certainly couldn't be us because we, we've already proven that we went with the Lord to the Mount of Transfiguration. We've cast out demons. These other nine guys are highly suspect at this point. And so, you know, they started to get into this debate that was there and it led immediately to this ongoing argument about who was going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. It was just their excuse to be able to talk about what they wanted to discuss Hey, who's going to be the greatest here? This particular discussion, for lack of a better way to put it, was really inexcusable. I want you to stop and think about the setting. Here they are in the upper room. Jesus has just instituted the new covenant. He said, this, this, this bread is my body that will be broken for you. You know, I'm, I'm on my way to be turned over to the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. 
I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to give my life as a ransom for many. My body's going to be broken for you. My blood, this is my blood that will be shed for you. The, the solemn nature of that moment had to be such that, you know, there was a certain reverence that should have been there. But apparently there wasn't because they still didn't get it. They didn't understand what was going on. Now, some people would say, well, hey, you got to give them credit that, you know, they knew Jesus was going to die. They believed he was going to be resurrected again because they were already arguing about who was going to be at, you know, the greatest in the kingdom of God. So they certainly had faith or trust that Jesus was everything he claimed to be. But in reality, this is not a commendation. This is a rebuke. And so they didn't understand it. You know, praise God that you and I today have the, have the Holy Spirit as we've trusted in Christ, we've repented from sin, we've believed in his death and his resurrection on our behalf. We're born again by the will of God. And the Bible says for those of us who are, the Spirit of God lives within us. And one of his responsibilities is to teach us and to guide us into God's truth. That we have an understanding of things that even those who walked with Jesus did not grasp or comprehend. And that's why Jesus said, you know what, it's better that I go away because when I go away, I will send my helper to you and he will guide you into all truth. Because some of us, we look back and we think, man, you know, how, how, how boneheaded were these guys? I mean, they were walking with Jesus for three years. They saw everything that he did up close and personal. They were, you know, personally mentored by Jesus himself and they still didn't get it. And all I can tell you is it's because, you know, they didn't have the presence of the Holy Spirit within their life until Pentecost, who then guided them and taught them in all truth. That's why you and I can open the Bible and read it, you know, and before we come to faith in Christ, I try to read the Bible, and it didn't make any sense to me. You know, somebody would say, hey, read read the Gospel of John. Now, I don't know if you've ever read the Gospel of John before you were a Christian. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Apart from him, all things came into being, nothing came into being. And it goes on, and it's like, huh? I mean, that wasn't easy reading for me. And you kind of go, oh, that was good, that's enough. And then later, when I came to faith in Christ, turned from sin, trusted that Jesus died for my sins, Lord, forgive me, and I trusted that his death was sufficient for my sins, I believed in his resurrection, received him as my Savior, then someone said, you ought to read the Gospel of John. And you go, okay, the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. They're talking about Jesus. And it would go on to say that, you know what? And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. And it's like, I know, I understand that. This is a good book. (laughs) And, And, you know, in one of the litmus tests of whether a person is really in Christ versus a person who just is in church is whether you have an understanding of what you read in the Bible. If you're sitting here today and you say, you know what, I'm like what you used to be. I don't understand it. Then I say to you, it's time to repent and to turn from sin and to trust that Jesus Christ died for your sins. He rose again from the dead and you need to believe in him. The Bible says, what must we do to be saved? Repent and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And when you do that, the spirit of God indwells you and all of a sudden now you read and go, I understand this. This is good stuff. So if reading the Bible is torture to you, better examine yourself to see if you're really in the faith. Because God's people read the Bible, it's like a love letter personally written from from God to our ears. And you go, man, Lord, thank you. I needed to hear from you today. And you've encouraged me. You've strengthened me. You've upheld me. You've given me confidence and strength. Thank you. Praise God awesome now back to this passage so this was all going on and what's interesting if you'll notice in this particular um, passage specifically in verse 24 it says and there arose also a dispute among them the word dispute in the original greek language means a lover of quarrels it means they enjoyed this have you ever been around people that just like to argue to argue 
they're not listening to evidence or facts or they're not, they're not trying to be persuaded or convinced. They're not even, tra- you know, they just like to hear themselves argue. If you say black, they'll say white. You say up, they say down. And they just loving it. It's like, this is so much fun just arguing. And they just loved it. It says that they enjoyed arguing, but it was also an outcome of a condition of their mind, meaning that it was ongoing, it was deep-seated. You know, their desire for recognition and the enjoyment they got out of the debate indicates how self-centered these men had become. The longer they were with Jesus, the more important they thought they were. And thus is the application for you and I today. There is a danger today For God's people to wrongly believe the longer that we are Christians, the more important we have become. And that's that subtle pride. That's that subtle desire for recognition. It's kind of like, I've been a Christian 20 years, you're a new believer. I know everything, you know nothing. And let me just tell you all that I know. And we begin to get very puffed up. And there's just that subtle desire for recognition that somehow or another, we aren't saved by grace any longer. When we're first saved from sin and the judgment of God as we trust in Christ, we recognize it's by God's grace we're saved through faith and not of ourselves. It certainly is a gift from God, so none of us could boast. The longer we walk with the Lord, the more we believe that we're pretty good people. And we forget how rotten we were. We forget how lost we were. We forget how dark our lives were. We forget the things that we did, and we start to get a little bit uppity. And when we get uppity... We're not very attractive to anybody. And we certainly will not fulfill God's purposes in our life. See, the disciples, think about this. They were like children who were arguing at the deathbed of a parent as to what they were going to get out of it. If they really believed that Jesus was about to die for their sins, and they're sitting there arguing about which one of us was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God... I mean, I couldn't even imagine, you know, the few, you know, several times that I've been in a hospital lately to have had my family at the bedside, you know, arguing about who was going to get what after God took me home. You know, they might do that somewhere else. But to do it right there in front of you, it's like, wow, man, I mean, this is pretty callous here. And that's why this whole conversation led to a springboard to Jesus' teaching. You know, and they began to argue. And the reason that they began to argue is because when we're interested in promoting ourselves, it doesn't take much to start an argument. See, when, you know, Peter, James, and John, when James and John, their mom said, Hey, Lord, you know, give one to my son on the right and one to my son on the left, it said that the others became indignant at this request because they thought, Well, if she asked, you know, they should have asked. And so it's kind of like if we promote ourselves, it doesn't take much to start an argument. When we seek self-promotion, think about it. How many problems do you have in your own home because someone is seeking to promote themselves or their agenda or their desires? James said it. What is the source of quarrels among us? Is it not our own selfish ambition? Is not the root of all the problems in our own households because someone is promoting themselves and their ambitions and their desires at the expense of others? Or others think, well, if you get that, then I should have that. And there you go. That's how the argument starts. We see it in our places of business where somebody would promote themselves or self-promotion or I should be promoted or I should get that job or I should get that raise and somebody hears about it, finds out about it and the first thing that happens is it starts an argument about, well, why did you give him a raise and why didn't you give me a raise? You know, for years in the construction industry, we always told our guys, it's like, listen, you know what? 
what we decide is between us. If you go and you leave here and you tell everybody now what you're making, then you're going to create nothing but hardship and heartache. And sure enough, it bet it never mattered. Every guy on every job site go, what are you making? I don't know, what are you making? And they'd start talking about it. And as soon as they start talking about it, then they'd start arguing about which one should be making what and why one's making what and they shouldn't. And, you know, you must be related to the owner. You know, and it's that kind of thing. You know, and so it's always, there's always that thing that goes on. And churches are no different. When we promote ourselves and, you know, or we promote one thing or another, you know, it just creates hardship. And usually self-promotion is, um, how many of you have had these types of discussions? If you're going to do it, do it the right way. Ever heard that? And you go, well, what's the right way? Well... My way? (laughs) Of course. We don't say that. We say there is a right way and a wrong way. Let me just tell you something. There is a right way. God determines it. There is a wrong way. God determines it. And then authority, as it's been given to us by God, then determines what is right and what is wrong. You can have rules for your house that certain things are right or wrong. And you know what? They're not the same rules for your house that are right and wrong. And the difference is it's not so much the activity itself, but it's the fact that if God doesn't say it's right or wrong, then you have the freedom to determine within your own household what it is that's right or wrong. Now, we may disagree. Well, that's not right for our house. Well, that's okay. It's right for our house. And so, yeah, well, you know what? See, they don't do it the right way. Well, what's the right way? My way. You, you, you would love some of the emails that I get. They're beautiful. And they usually are sent to people who will send me attached documents that will be from someone in some type of a authority somewhere church-wise that says, basically, I'm sending this to you to confirm and reaffirm that what I told you was right because this person agrees with me. Now, what's funny about it is, is that the same person who quotes that source doesn't agree with them on any other ministry philosophy but that one particular one. And they'll send that and say, see, I was right because this person concurs with me. And what's fascinating is, and what we're learning, is that, you know what? There are certain things that are right and wrong. The rest are all a matter of form. And we can all agree, agreeably, to disagree in love and in charity and still be pleasing to God. You know, you walk in the building and say, you know, I don't like the color of the carpet. Well, that doesn't make it right or wrong. It just means it's your preference. I don't like you wearing a suit or a tie. Now, the widows group met last week and all of them are absolutely convinced it's the will of God that I wear a suit and tie every week And not only me, but every guy that's on the elder board. They've come to that edict, and, you know, they sent word from a messenger to tell me. And and, and I appreciate that, you know, because that's what they believe to be the way a church should look. And, And I don't have a problem with that because we all have our opinion. Now, it doesn't make it right or it doesn't make it wrong. And we can smile and we can laugh about those things. And the same thing is true in worship. The same thing is true with a lot of things. And so we've got to understand and recognize that, you know what? At the root of the problem is selfish ambition. And we, we hide it, we disguise it by trying to convince people that what we believe is right and what you believe is wrong. And you know what? It's not a question of right or wrong. Because God has given us those in authority in our places of business, in our places of government, in our church leadership. And really, at the end of the day, what we'll determine outside of what God has clearly determined to be right or wrong is what we determine as, you know, a pastor and as our elder board and as our leadership. We'll determine that, you know, and we're open to input and we listen. But at the end of the day, we're all going to get to a point where we're going to disagree on some things, but we need to do it in an agreeable fashion. Otherwise, all it is is the sin of self-promotion and self-recognition. If it's not done my way, it's wrong. And I will go around 
And I will whisper and murmur in the ears of everyone who listens. And people who don't agree with me, I will not share that with them anymore. People who do agree with me, I will gather my alliance. And then we'll start to build some momentum. And then we will take over. <laughs> you know, we, we just need to go back to the word of God and say, you know what? Thank you. Thank you for the clarity that your word gives us. Because as you look at this, he began to explain the principle of true greatness. If you want to be great in God's kingdom, notice this. He's saying, fellas, you've got this all wrong. This is a rebuke. This isn't a commendation of, hey, way to go. You know I'm dying, but that's okay. You're already struggling for a position in the kingdom, so at least you're, you know, you're up on the resurrection. That's not what he's talking about. This was ongoing. He says, you know what? And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles lord it over them, and those who have authority over them are called benefactors. So he pulls out, you know, this exercise of authority among believers as a word picture or role model of how things shouldn't be done. What he's saying is that, you know what, when you think like that, you're thinking like unbelievers. You're not thinking like God's people. You're thinking like the world thinks. You know, we want it our way, we'll gather some momentum, we'll whisper in the ears of people, we'll get people to agree with us, and then you know what, and then we can get done whatever we want done because that's the way the world works, that's how it all operates. He goes, you know what, don't think like that. Yeah, that's the way the world operates. I mean, he says, you know, look at these people, these Gentile leaders, you know, they they give themselves titles, they call themselves benefactors, but at the end of the day, all they do is use their position to shove down the throats of those around them what they want done. That's all. Those are the kind of people that kind of had that mentality, their mindset that, you know what? Well, well, I'm the boss. Years ago, I ran into a, uh, this, this article and part of a story that was written by Francis Schaeffer. And, and listen to what he writes. And I was reminded of this. It was probably 20 years ago I saw this. And, and when I read this passage, I said, you know what? That, that sums it all up. And then it was a matter of trying to figure out what book it was I read and where can I find it. And I found it. He said this, people in the world naturally want to boss others. It says, imagine a boy beginning with a firm. He's ordered around by everybody. Do this, do that. He's the last man on the totem pole. One day when the boss is out, he goes into the boss's office, sits down behind his desk and says out loud, one day I will be in this position and when I say do this, they'll do it. And when I say do that, they'll do that. When I say run, they will run. He said, this is man. And let us say with tears that a person does not automatically abandon this mentality when he becomes a Christian. There remains a seed in us that wants to be boss. A word of power in us that will keep us above the others. Wow, how powerfully convicting that is. I remember when our son was in grade school, elementary school. And they made him, mistakenly made him, the hall monitor for a week. <laughs> they gave him a badge. Good thing they didn't give him a gun. <laughs> because he was just slaying them left and right with the badge, man. He'd come home with stories about how many people he wrote up. Freeze, hall monitor. Freeze, man. It was like, hey, I got this position of authority and I'm digging this, man. And unfortunately, many of God's people get this position of authority and they start to dig it. And they start to like telling other people what to do. As if somehow or another, we got all the answers to everything. And like I said, you know, there are some things that are doctrinal. And you know what? That's not open for discussion. But there are a lot of other things. You know what? We need to be open and teachable and willing to listen. You know, it's like, oh man, it was freezing in here last week. Okay, well, we'll try to figure out a way so it's not as cold. You know, we need more parking spaces up above for those who are physically disabled. Okay, we need to listen to that. Hey, we got people sitting on the wings. They can't really see the words on the overhead monitors. And all right, well, we need to, we need to be sensitive to that. You know, we, we need to be open and teachable and, and not be so defensive like somehow or another we're being insulted when somebody says something. Hey, you know what? We, we need shorter lines in the ladies' room. You know, hey. I got some suggestions, but I'm not so sure. You know, don't stay there as long. You know, hey, 
You know, guys, when we go, man, we don't have to take people with us when we go. Have to turn it into a, you know, a women's Bible study or something. Hey, stall number three, what do you got for number six? I mean, you know, just get in, get out, do your job and get it done. So, you know, there are, there are some suggestions that we'll kind of go back and forth with. And, uh, and preach it, brother. Yeah, yeah, trying to get me in trouble again. But the bottom line is, is that he's saying, hey, you know what? But, but notice this, Jesus says, but not so, verse 26, but it's not so with you. You know, it's, it, but this isn't the way God's people are to be. Yeah, that's how the world operates, but it's not so with you. I love that. Let him who is the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as the servant. And Jesus says, for who's greater, the one who reclines at the table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But he says, but I am among you as the one who serves. Now to understand this, what Luke doesn't record that the gospel of John records is that we are to be conformed into the image of Christ. And during this supper, during this, this, this meal, Jesus got up from the table and he walked over and he got a basin of water and he brought it back and he began to wash his disciples' feet. And it says that he did this as an example for us as God's people that we are to lead by example. And what is the greatest example that we have? The Lord Jesus Christ. For even the Son of Man, God himself in human flesh, didn't come into the world to be served by others, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. And so what he did when he said this was, hey, well, let me ask you a question. Who's greater, the one who has served the food or the one serving the food? Well, the one who has served the food. Well, I'm being served the food, but I also got up and I served you. And Peter said, don't do it. I don't want you washing my feet. And he said, you know what? If you don't let me wash your feet, you'll have nothing and I'll have nothing to do with you. And he said, then give me a bath. But he knew Because he knew that if he was to be like Jesus, and Jesus was stooping as low as a servant to wash other people's feet, then he knew that Jesus would require that of him, and he hurried up and he headed him off at the pass and said, don't do it because I don't want to have to do it. He said, too bad. I came to serve and to give. And you, as my child in this world, are to be a testimony to the world when you're like me. You will serve and you will give. You will not be a getter. You will be a giver. It's convicting stuff. Because the heart of it is, you know what? Is that the example that I follow? See, a servant doesn't argue over who's the greatest because he knows he's the least. And he accepts this from the hand of God. Since all Christians are to be servants, there's no reason to compete with one another for honors or recognition. Folks, every ministry is important. And I appreciate those who don't act like spoiled children when they don't get what they want. There are a lot of things that change in church formats and church structure. And as we move forward, you know, I appreciate it. I'll give you an example of, of, a, of a servant's heart. Because last week we had, you know, our dedication service. And, you know, and there was a certain flow to the worship. But it meant that there were some people who minister on a regular basis who were not asked to participate because it didn't fit in the flow of what we were trying to accomplish. You know, the wonderful thing about that is I never heard from one of them griping or moaning about, well, why ain't I up front? You know, I've been serving for two years, man, at the Elks on their first Sunday. I should be up front. You know, we had a wedding here a couple of months ago, and I was asked if I wanted to participate, and I appreciate the sensitivity of it. But you know what? It wasn't, it wasn't about me. It was about the family that was here, and one of our elders had the privilege of officiating at his own daughter's wedding. You know, and I sat, and I got to sit where you sit, and I got to enjoy what God was doing, and yet the devil was whispering in my ear, man, you should be up there. This is the first event that takes place here. And said, you know what? Get behind me, Satan, because it's not about me. See, it's about having a servant's heart that says, you know what, it isn't about me. It's about what is best for God and for God's people. And it's a difficult thing at times when change is made because it's like, well, wait a minute, how do I fit in? You fit in. There's a place. 
We're not sure exactly what all those places will be as we move forward, but you know what? There's a place for all of us because God has called all of us to serve and to give and to use those gifts that God has given us. You know, but it won't take much to start an argument the first time someone says, but I want recognized. And to me, it's the biggest flag that says, you know what? Then you probably shouldn't be in a leadership position. Because if you need recognition, then you're not ready to lead. Because, you know, Peter learned from this later on in life, inspired by the Spirit of God. He said, you know what? I I beseech you as, as elders of the church not to lord over those who have been entrusted you, but to, to serve, you know, to serve with a servant's heart, you know. And he goes on to talk about to be humble and humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he would exalt you at the proper time. Not to lord it over those who are allotted to your charge, but to serve as, as a shepherd, you know, and lead by example. It's so important that we recognize and understand that. See, if we, if we clamor for promotion and recognition, it will lead to nothing but disharmony and strife. But if we say, as Isaiah said, Lord, here I am, use me. I had a meeting this past week with some of the guys on the worship team, and the most wonderful thing I heard was, listen, we're here to serve. Whatever's best for the body of Christ at Kindred Community Church, that's what we want to do. So you just give us direction, you tell us what you want, and you know what, and that's what we're here to do. Man, you know, well, that's a beautiful place to be. It frees you up, but I'll guarantee it doesn't, it doesn't mean the enemy won't keep jumping all over him saying, man, you don't really buy into that, do you? You know, you're getting pushed out, man, you're getting pushed on the side, you know, you're not getting your recognition. And that's why I go back to the word of God and notice this, the promises to those who obey this principle, folks, true greatness means to be like Jesus. And that means being a servant to others. That means considering others more important than ourselves. That's why Philippians 2 says, have this attitude, because it's an attitude. Have this attitude in yourself that was also in Christ Jesus. You know, consider others more important than yourselves. And it goes on to talk about how, how Christ laid aside, you know, all the prerogatives, the privileges of being God. And taking on the form of a man, humble to the likeness of a servant, a bond servant, a human being, God of the universe, taking on the form of a lowly human being because it was to fulfill the plan of God to redeem you and I back to him. We need to be more like Jesus. And he says for those of us who who are obedient to these principles, he says, hey, listen, you know what? Don't, don't, don't give up here because there is something in it for you. And you are those who have stood by me, in verse 28, in my trials. And just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant to you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Notice this. He's saying to all of God's people, if you just do what I'm asking you to do, one day there's future glory. You know, today we suffer with Christ. One day we are exalted with him. And it's a wonderful thing. Today we suffer, then there's glory. Today we live in these perishable bodies. One day we're resurrected to imperishable ones. Today we live in weakness. One day we will live in power. Today we live in humility. And one day we live exalted by God. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he will exalt you at the proper time. Peter, who said, don't wash my feet, later, inspired by the Spirit of God, as I've already mentioned, if you want to turn back to 1 Peter chapter 5, learned his lesson well. And as God used him to write this portion of Scripture, he says, therefore, I exhort the elders, the leaders among you, as your fellow elder and witnesses of the sufferings of Christ, partakers also of the glory that's to be revealed. He says, shepherd the flock of God. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according to the will of God, not for sordid gain, but with eagerness nor yet as lording it over those allotted to your charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. 
You younger men likewise be subject to your elders and all of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another. For God is opposed to the proud but he gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you at the proper time. Casting all your anxiety upon him because he cares for you. Humble yourself that he may exalt you. Be servants today that one day you will reign with him when he establishes his kingdom. Now, here's the peril that we all face as we look at this and and wrap this passage up back in Luke chapter 22. Notice he said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. What's the peril? There's two things. One, number one, we have a very real enemy. And the Bible identifies this personality as Satan and demons and these evil forces of darkness and principalities that we can't see but that exist. And so as I mentioned that, you know, when we say, well, God, I want to live as a servant. I want to be humble. I don't want self-recognition. I don't want self-promotion. I want to be a humble servant. Then he's saying, but just get ready because the enemy is going to come to you and just work you over. Because he's the one that says things like, you know what? Hey, you should be up front. You should be first. This is your church. This is your position of authority. This is, this is you, 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 you. And you get that thing that goes on where you're battling this battle and you're going, you know what, though? But that's not God. God's truth. And so we got to get to that point where it's like Jesus said, you know, to Peter, get behind me, Satan. Your mind is not set on the things of God. Your mind is set on the things of man. It's all about you. And I'll guarantee you this, that when it's all about you, then it's not about God. If it's all about you, then you're not a servant. Because a servant doesn't even recognize that he or she is serving. When did we see you hungry? When did we see you naked? When did we visit you in prison? When did we give you something to drink? When? I don't know. And Jesus said, hey, when you did the least of my brethren, you were doing it unto me. And you didn't even realize that you were serving because you were so involved in giving to the lives of others. You never looked at it as being a hard work or an effort on your part. It was just God's love flowing through you. See, when we serve and we recognize we're serving and it's an effort to serve, then you know what? Then we're serving in the wrong area because we should have that joy that comes with serving our God. It's not hard work. No one has to tell me, you need to study this week and prepare your sermon. Nobody's ever had to tell me that. Whether I was teaching a Bible study to one person or 10 people in a locker room or whatever, you know, would show up in a church. No one ever had to tell me, you know, you need to be prepared. I love studying the Word of God. I love putting it together. I love learning God's truth. I can't wait to share what I've learned and share it with you so you can learn it. And I can't wait to tell you how when I applied it, these are the things that have happened and when others have applied it. I can't wait to do that. No one has to say, you know what? You really need to work harder at studying and preparing to preach the word of God. I hope no one ever has to say that to me because the day that that happens, then I've lost my first love. But if someone has to tell you, you know, you really need to work harder at at developing your voice. Or you need to really work harder at, you know, working with children and being prepared. You need to work harder at having a lesson plan ready. You need, if if we got to tell people to work harder, then they're not the right people. And so he's saying, listen, the peril that we face is we'll be attacked by Satan that says, hey, you know what, it's all about you. The other peril that we're going to face is what we see in the life of Peter, and that is he's self-confident. Notice this. He says, but I've prayed for you that your faith may not fail you, and once you've turned again, strengthen your brothers. And he said to him, Lord, with you, I'm ready to go both to prison and to death. I'm the man. How can you say I'm going to deny you? Look at me. And Peter was a huge dude, man. I mean, read through the Bible and pull him nets of fish filled with fish, 300 and some fish, and you kind of figure it out, you know, because it's a guy thing. It's like, you know, pumping weights, you know, and doing sets and reps. And you go, man, he pulled a whole net of fish and 300 and some fish. And, you know, I don't care how big or little they were. That's a lot of weight, soaking wet. And he's there, oh, not me. I will never deny you. I'm going to the death with you, man. I'm right there for you. Got your back, brother. And he's like, well, let me just tell you something about you that you apparently don't know. Before this night's over, you'll deny you even know me. And so we have this danger of self-confidence. 
Our confidence has to be in the Lord. And I've read this passage, and I'll tell you what. I got so much comfort out of this because I want you to look very closely at verse 32. The devil has to ask God permission to beat on us. I like that. He has demanded permission to sift you, and you is plural. It wasn't just Peter, it was all the disciples. He has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. So the first comfort I get is this. He says, Chuck, listen. The devil came to me and said, he wanted me to give him permission to beat you up with cancer. That's all right. Because I prayed for you. The devil came to me and said he wanted to beat you up with other health issues. You. The devil came to me and demanded permission because he wanted to beat you up with financial difficulties. The devil came to me and demanded permission because he wanted to beat you up with relational problems. The devil had to come to me and ask permission, and I gave him permission, but it's okay because I have prayed for you. And you know what he prayed? Not that I would be healed from my cancer. Not that you would be healed from your ailment necessarily. Not that you would be, uh, you know, somehow miraculously delivered from your financial problems. Not that somehow all your relational problems are going to go away. You know what he prayed? And I prayed for you that your faith would not fail. That's what it's all about. The devil went to God and said, hey, let me beat up Job. And I'll guarantee you that if I take away all of his stuff, that he will curse the day that he ever knew you. I guarantee you if you let me take away his health, that he will curse the day that he called you, that he, he called you his God. I guarantee you that if I can just tweak this guy or this gal's life just a little bit, I can show you the only reason people love you, God, is because they are afraid not to, and they know if they do, they'll get what they want out of you, and they're playing you, God. And God says, you know what? You do whatever you want, but don't take their life, and I will show you that they love me from their hearts. And you know what Job did? He lost everything, and he never cursed God, and he maintained his integrity. And he said, I've come in naked, I'm going out naked, blessed be the name of the Lord. And you know what? And my prayer is the same. That if God's taking me home through cancer and if Satan thinks this is somehow a thorn or affliction in my side that'll get me to deny my God, then on my deathbed I pray, I came in with nothing, I'm going out with nothing, but I'm going out, you know what, in the hands of God, blessed be the name of the Lord. That's what God is trying to show you and I. And that's what he showed Peter. And let me tell you what he told Peter. You will fail. Not your faith. Your courage, you're going to be weak. A little girl's going to come to you and say, hey, aren't you with the Galilean? And you're going to go, no, I don't even know him. I don't know if Jesus said that or not, but, but that's what Peter ended up doing. And, you know, and, 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 you know, can you imagine the other disciples are all sitting around going, dude, if he's going to deny him and he's our leader, what hope is there for the rest of us? You know what the hope is for all of us? That he prayed for us. He's our advocate. He said, you know what? But I prayed your faith would not fail. When your courage fails, when you deny me, when you doubt me, when you struggle with me, it's okay. Because when you turn from that doubt, you turn from that lack of courage, when you turn and you go back in the right direction again, then you know what? I want you now to strengthen your brothers because you know what? There are going to be times in their life where they struggle. And you know what I think God is doing? And, and only you will know that and God will know that. But I hear enough from people that I'm, I'm starting to pick up on this is that God is using this affliction in my life to strengthen you in the affliction in your life 
with the same comfort by which God has comforted me. It's okay because we're in God's hands. If you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, the devil can throw everything at you, but he will never get your soul. And you have a choice, and I have a choice, how we will respond. And how we respond is a question or a matter of whether we truly understand that, you know what, we are totally in God's hands. Nothing can happen to us unless God allows it. And when we read that we should consider it all joy when we encounter various trials, why? Because we know that the testing of our faith produces endurance, and endurance has its perfect result, that we will be perfect and complete, mature, lacking in nothing. The only way you and I can grow in our faith is by going through trials. And we can consider them joy because they're not a matter of self, they're not a matter of God's discipline. Once we rule out that God is not disciplining us and we look and say, well, this is a trial, I can consider it joy because I know that God is behind it bringing about my spiritual maturity and his desires to conform me into the image of Christ. And so as he chips away at our lives, we know at the end of the day, we'll be more like Jesus. And that's a great place to be. See, the peril we all face is that we will be attacked by an enemy who says, don't trust God. We will even attack ourselves by putting too much self-confidence in the mix. But see, no temptation has overtaken us that's not common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you or I to be tested beyond that which we're able, but with every temptation will provide a way of escape that you and I can endure it. He didn't say, hey, Chuck, you know, the, the secret is in your hands. It's all in your attitude. It's all in a positive frame of mind. It's all in keeping a, a sense of, of, of humor. You know what? No, he said, look, you know what? The only way that you'll escape the temptation of doubting me in the midst of your trials is to come to me and I will give you that path. It's all about God, folks, and not about us. The more people I talk to regarding my cancer, the more I realize that if, if I am healed, it's only because God has chosen to heal me. Because there hasn't been one person yet that I said, I got the answer to your problem. They say, well, you can try this, you can try that, we can do this, we can do that. And at the end of all of it, we kind of go, okay, God, I got the picture. If, you are, if I will be delivered from this, it is because you will deliver me. And the same is true for all of us. If we will be delivered, it's only because God will deliver us through. Application. Have you ever failed God? Have you ever failed God? How many, yeah, I got some amens here. All right, there you go. Good. Here's wonderful news for you. Use that failure and how God brought you through it and what he taught you, what you learned from it, to now strengthen others who are going through something similar. And you know when we do that, it just, just bops Satan in the eye. Because you know what he wants you to believe? God can't use you. You're a failure. Jesus said, hey, you know what? Peter's a failure. But I wasn't done with him. His courage failed. His faith didn't fail. And you know what? And when I picked him up and dusted him off later on, he was a huge source of strength to all the other brothers. He learned from his lesson. Take your failures... And use them to encourage others to the glory of God. And God gets all the praise. Isn't that great? You know what is even more exciting? Almost every one of us qualify for that ministry. <laughs> and the ones who didn't raise their hand aren't convinced quite yet that what they did was wrong. But now you are. <laughs> 
You know, and lastly, Jesus tells of the preparation that was needed for the future in verses 35 through 38. He says, hey, he said to them, when I sent you out without purse and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, no, nothing. He said, well, you know what? Things are changing. And what he meant by that was, when you went out before, people still liked me. And if you were with Jesus, people liked you. But there's a day coming real soon that people are going to shout, crucify him, crucify him. And now when you go out in my name, people aren't going to like you. Now you need to be, you know, gentle as doves and wise as serpents. Said So he said to them, but now let him who has a purse, take it. You have a bag, take that also. You have no sword, sell your robe and buy one. For I tell you that that which is written must be fulfilled in me. And he, no, he was numbered with transgressors. For that which refers to me has its fulfillment. And he's saying, hey, you know what? And, and notice these guys are great. They said, oh, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it's enough. He's not saying the two swords were enough because later in the garden, he said, put your sword away. If you live by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. So he's not saying run around and buy a bunch of swords. We've got a battle coming up. He's just saying, hey, you need to be prepared because you're about to go into a spiritual warfare. And you know what? And you're not going to be embraced like you were before. So get ready. We've got, we, we got a battle on our hands. And they looked at it from the physical as they did everything else. They said, oh, look, we got two swords. And you know what he said? This is enough. <laughs> Lesson over, conversation done. It is enough. And you know what? And that's where we are. This is enough. This is enough for today. Because when we look at this, the application, you know, there are several fold. Number one, as I'm looking at this, you know, it's like, hey, no more self-promotion. We need to all be like Jesus. We need to serve and to give ourselves to others. You know, it's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about any of us individually. It's about, God, what is best for you and for your people? We need to lead by example, not lording our position over others, but, you know, as a shepherd, you know, we lead by example. We don't use our position of authority to dictate to people what we want done without, you know, talking about it in a loving way and explaining it with gentleness and instruction. And here's what we think and here's why we think this. And are you in agreement? And if so, then let's all move and accomplish this goal together. You know, there, there, there's no, you know, hard-fisted leadership in the kingdom of God. Now, it may mean at the end of the day, we agree to do something that we don't all agree with because you still may have your doubt, your, you know, your difference of opinion, but that's okay, but at least you'll understand why it is that we've chosen to go whatever direction that we choose to go. See, don't be self-confident. Rely on the Lord. Trust in Him with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He promises to set our path straight. Never say, that couldn't happen to me, or I'd never do that. That's what Peter said, not me. You know, and, and it's almost like our, our greatest strength is our greatest weakness. Abraham had great strength in his faith, and yet his faith failed him when he went down to Egypt and lied about Sarah. You know, Moses, his strength was his meekness, and yet he blew a gasket and he, and he threw a fit and it kept him from going into the promised land. You know, Peter was a brave man, but his courage failed him and he denied even knowing Jesus three times. And that passage in 1 Corinthians 10 says, Therefore, you know, let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he too shall fall. Oh, that won't happen to me. Get ready. Oh, Lord, but by the grace of God. That could happen to me too. Keep me from that type of danger. Use your failures to strengthen others. What a wonderful truth that is. When you have turned, then use that failure to strengthen and build up the brethren. True greatness means to be like Jesus. And that means living our lives committed to serving and to giving first God and then one another let's pray Father thank you for this time again to be together thank you for the truth of your word we thank you for the example of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ 
For even the Son of Man did not come to serve, to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. God, may we be servants at heart. May we not seek self-promotion. May we seek your will and what's best for your kingdom and for your purposes. Lord, all of us have failed at some point or another in different ways and in various forms. God, may we use those failures to bring glory to your kingdom. May we use those failures to strengthen those who may be struggling in a similar area at this point. May we help them to to see the danger of the path that they're choosing. There's a way that seems right to men, your word tells us, but but the road is destruction. Lord, help us who have failed in the past to use those failures to warn others of the direction that they're choosing to go. God, we thank you when we think about those failures that as far as the east is from the west, so far you've removed those transgressions from us as we've confessed our sin and repented from them. You tell us that you are just, righteous to forgive us and to cleanse us from all of that. And we thank you and we praise you. God, may we have servants' hearts. May we be giving. And may you get all the glory and praise. In Christ's name, amen.